When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That would be Mr. Briscoe. I would be Bradshaw. If you've seen the problem that we had getting started today, that was the whole show. But this show is getting a lot bigger and a lot better because we got a two-time Hall of Famer, one of the greatest managers of all time, of the greatest faction of all time. For everything from the 80s through the 90s, he was there. He's one of the smartest guys in the business. He's also one of the best guys in the business. Our friend, Mr. J.J. Dillon. JJ, welcome to the show. Wow, with an introduction like that, man, oh man, how am I going to live up to that hype? Well, yep. he left a decade out, JJ. He left the <laughs> 70s out. That's when I first met you. So I'm going to give you your, your due to search. The 70s was your one of your decades, too. So Yeah, I, I think I started full time with Crockett in 80, 81, I think. And I, now, I, I, I met you there in 71, right? I thought it was 81. Was it eighty one? Well, yeah, I, I, I got memory. I got memory problems. That's the seventy. That that's when Ollie was there. Yeah, uh, that was eighty one. And I and at that point, I was uh, I was twenty eight years old. I wasn't a kid. And being on the road full time as a as a professional wrestler, I was getting to live my dream. But I had to wait a while to do it. Well, I, I remember your first wife. She got mad at me because you had a birthday party. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, but I don't remember the details. My wives are all mad at me. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> they mad at me, too. JJ and John, JJ has his birthday party. He's brand new in Carolinas, you know. So so she invites everybody. She don't know me yet, obviously, or she wouldn't have invited me. So. You know, so I come to the party, I get, you know, drink my fire water and we get out. So she makes this beautiful birthday cake for JJ's 28th or 29th birthday. It might have been his 30th birthday. Who knows? He's old fart. But anyway, so she brings it out, you know, okay, blow, blow the candles out, JJ. So I get up next to him like I'm going to help him blow the candles out. And he buries So I do that old heel wrestling move (laughs) when he turns over to blow the candles out. I shoved the cake up in his face, and there oh, goes that brand-new homemade birthday cake And his wife spent hours and days preparing for this special occasion, laying on a damn dirt in North Carolina. Yeah, and whatever he looked at me, whatever he, looked he, at me and said, I think it's time you leave. <laughs> I mean, we're just getting started. Gerald was a guest of honor. You can't ask him to leave. But, you know, <laughs> These women sometimes they just uh, they don't understand us. That's they got no sense of humor. No sense of humor. (laughs) That's why I had to get married three times to try and find one that had a sense of humor. (laughs) My 
my last wedding, I, I was down in Florida and Jerry was going to be a groomsman in my wedding. And he called me and he goes, said, my son just made this, the state wrestling tournament. He goes, I really need to go to that. And I said, Jerry, I completely understand. Of course you got to go that Jerry said, but I promise I'll be at your next wedding. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> I'm still waiting for that. He got lucky and found somebody that can tolerate his big Texas ass. Oh wow! <laughs> Woo! So how's everybody doing? Everybody looks great. Well, well Jerry, you know, great is <laughs> that's a little stretch, but. You look good. <laughs> While we were trying to get uh, Gerald Briscoe on, uh, JJ mentioned that all those books behind you, he did, he bets the over-under on you reading one, and he had the under. And I agreed with him. I wouldn't take the over. Yeah. How many of those books have you actually read there, Jerry? Well, there's one that says, How to Get Rich Quick Now, <laughs> written by John Layfield Bradshaw. I read that one. There's another one that says dummies. Uh, I got some dummies up here. Dummies for philosophy. Dummies for Romans. Dummies for making chili. So I, I've, I've read one. And there's a Southern Living Garden book. I think I read that one because I plant gardens. And there's Ancient Rome. Mythology. Going through all my book lists here, and here's Don Rickles here. Pat Patterson gave me that book and the life story. Don Rickles, that's a good wow. book. It's a funny song gone. If you if you ever get a chance to read it, pick it up and read it. But Pat gave me that book, so I have to say front and center there. Then there's Thomas Jefferson right next to Don Rickles. Then there's Queen Mary of Scots. I got know, all these books. Did you when know you're Thomas, married to a did history? You know Thomas before. Jefferson? <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 me and him uh, shared peyote together back in the old days. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Jerry, you know something that's bad? Now, I, I watched, of course, like everybody did, the Four Horsemen and J.J. Dillon and everything in WCW. And when I come into WWE and had that tryout match in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, you and J.J. pulled me aside and signed me. And you're mentioning that to J.J. before the show started. And J.J. said, I did? So apparently, I didn't make very much of an impression on JJ Dillon. I just well, you know, you have that effect on people. Yeah, I have a short memory. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a flaw in my character, not you. <laughs> hey, JJ, when you, were, I was, I was really interested. I was reading some of your books. I watched your stuff on uh, Hannibal TV. I thought it was uh, really interesting stuff. How you got started? Well, one thing I loved about it was you were a referee. And you yep. talked about the state commissions in, uh, say, Jersey and, and New York. Yep. And those guys were like political favors kind of referees. They weren't smart to the business. And, and most, of them, most of them weren't. At, at those days in Pennsylvania, I know, um, and I and Jersey too, but I was living in Pennsylvania and working more there. But there was a commission that would assign you. And this is back in the, God, late 70s. And if you refereed uh, a, a match, it was a hundred dollar payoff, which a hundred dollars today is. Oh uh, yeah. But a hundred dollars back in the seventies was, that was a lot of money. I, that's how I started. I started, I was a referee for, for, uh, for eight years. But how, hey, JJ, they didn't like doing heat matches. Did they? All those guys, no, they were like, uh, they were like, uh, you know, like John said, political guys, you know, and it's only anytime there was any heat, yeah. you know, you That's knew true. you were going to get to work because old damn guys didn't want to work any of the heat matches or anything. They wanted that hundred dollar payoff, but they yeah. didn't want anybody being mad at them. And and I and the thing was, with the heat, 
the, the, to draw money, you had to have times where you got heat. And so the heels were, I mean, I endeared myself to them because I was the one that would do the match with the hot finish. And they would, they would make sure that I, nobody ever laid a hand on me because they would tell me in the ring, they would say, when it's time to go, when, you know, when we give the nod to the cops in the back and they start up the halfway up the aisle, when we tell you to go, you go and don't stop and don't look back. And I, that's what I did. I, when I, when they say go and I'd see those guys coming up the aisle, I would go down to the floor and I could just feel their presence behind me. And then, and, uh, I, they, they took good care of me because if you're going to bat returns or what have you, you had to have a heat in the finish sometimes. And the other referees, it was like a political thing with them. They loved getting that hundred bucks, but the minute that, uh, that the, somebody started doing a finish where you had to work a return out of it, where the referee was in a compromising position, then all of a sudden, oh, their back was hurting and this was hurting and that was hurting. And they always knew that, you know, that I would be there for whatever needed to be done. Cause above all, I was a fan still am to this day, but then it was just, uh, it was a job and that was the difference. And you got to wrestle because of that, because a lot of those referees didn't want to deal with heat, and, and Bruno nope. couldn't. Bruno couldn't win every single match. A lot of his nope. matches would end in heat, leading up to something. You got to referee a lot of Bruno Sammartino's matches, right? I did, and and developed a great, great uh, personal friendship with him. And uh, he was a wonderful person and helped me in in many, many ways. But uh, it, it's like you say. Uh, he most of the most of the guys that would come in with Bruno, whether it was Monsoon, uh, Baron Cicluna, they they all would come in for like a, a it was a, like a three match thing, and the fans never never realized the similarity. At least I don't think they did. And it was they would come in the first time, and there would be a, a DQ finish, so they'd have to have a return, no DQ. They come back with no DQ in the second match sell out again. And this time there'd be a count out or some kind of a fluky thing. So then the third one was like what we would later call like a Texas death match, or there must be a winner, no count out. You know, you'd spell all the, 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 the ways the match could end without them seeing the finish. And it, that worked so they could get the third match. And the, the one that broke the, the, the mold with that was, uh, Bruno was uh, against uh, Killer Kowalski, and Kowalski was so hot that they sold out all three matches, and and they wanted to break the mold and do a, a fourth match. And I remember Arnold Skolan, uh called me at home, and he said, "We want to try and get a fourth match with Kowalski, but we got to do something a little bit funky. And he said, you know, I know you're commissioned, but you're with us and have been. And that's why we always look out after you. But he said, we need to do something where a chair comes in the ring. Somebody throws the chair, somebody ducks, you get the chair goes down. And he said to really make the thing right, you know, it'd be nice if we, you know, saw a little blood running down your face. And, and I said, whatever you guys need, I'll do. And that's what made me different from the other commission referees that, that uh, would have been a horrified that even the thought of being asked to do something like that. But the guys uh, took care of me because of that. And and that's what happened. We got that fourth match with Kowalski, chair came in the ring. And uh, I'm trying to think which one, one brought the chair in, 
and come in off the floor. And I want to say that it was probably might've been Bruno that had the chair where Kowalski threw the chair in and Bruno got it. They had a tug and then they got it or, but it doesn't really matter, but it was like the, there was the, the two contestants it was either Kowalski or uh, Bruno that had the chair and I'm the third one. And it's like the three of us are circling. And then at the right moment, one of them would go between, between the chair and me and that's right when the chair would fly wham i'd get the chair down i would go and uh, they told me just you're knocked out lay there don't move a muscle and they would go to fist city here come the cops to break it up the dressing room the baby faces come out the heels come out all the heels grabbed the kowalski all the baby faces uh grabbed bruno and they pulled him out of the ring. The cops are ordering him to clear the ring, being sent back to the dressing room. I'm laying there motionless. They bring in the paramedics. They bring in a stretcher, put me on a stretcher, haul me out. I'm the referee, and I'm, I'm incapable of rendering a decision. All of a sudden, there was a match that that uh, this was no disqualification, no count out, and there's no referee to render a decision. So that's when they would they would – uh, two-ton Tony, Tony Galento was one of the guys that uh, was an old-time boxer. So the fourth match, it was like, well, this we're going to bring in two-ton Tony Galento. We're going to get a, a decision on this. The same thing's not going to happen. And then they, you know, they took care of me because I was part of that story. But it was a wonderful, wonderful time. I mean, it was all wonderful. There was I can't think of a, a time in my career where where it wasn't great. Uh, JJ, that had to be a thrill for you. I mean, you you grew up being a, a Bruno San Martino uh, fan and, and a pro wrestling fan, and you just started you started out by just kind of hanging around and yeah. uh, and doing whatever you could do, right for the for the for the company there, the local promotion yeah. company there, to try to just get a spot and get your way in, yeah. so you wouldn't have to buy a ticket because you're a college boy, right? Yeah. And what happened was they used to do a studio TV show. Uh, in Philadelphia every Wednesday night for an hour that would air on Saturday and Ray Fabiani would run either the arena or convention center once a month with a big show. And they would use that Wednesday show to, to, to build up the stories and build and build up, build up the card. And they took care of you at fourth yep. of match. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and what, what happened was the, the fourth match, obviously, I couldn't because they were bringing in a ring of referee. And one thing that I I I had such admiration for for Bruno. And when I did the uh, the the chair shot stretcher job, and couldn't be a referee for that match where they brought in Galento, uh, Bruno Bruno said to me that at that night, he said that uh, anybody talk to you or they do anything. For you special and i said no nah, no but that's okay and he said and i and i said i never said anything and he said bruno and this is bruno's exact words he said well i'm glad that you didn't say anything and i'm going to ask you to not say anything and leave it up to me and what happened was they used to go to the office in washington dc at the franklin park hotel and that's where the guys would get advances every night and then they would put the houses together and whatever additional payoffs they had they you know, they'd get a chunk of money at the office, uh, on, on Thursday. I was told that, that I wasn't the only one that Bruno was making phenomenal money. He was an incredible champion that drew, but he, he cared about the guys that were the, 
in the opening matches, making 50 bucks. And he would go to bat for them if the house was better to get a little bit better payoff. And some of the, and I remember that even he told me, he said, one of the promoters said, well, we take good care of you. You're making phenomenal money. Why are you sticking up for them? And, and that was Bruno never even gave an answer because that's just the quality human being that he was, that it was, he did, he did things like that because in his mind, it was the, it was the right thing to do. And I, uh, I remember after the, the chair shot, I got my hundred dollars that night, the same as any other time. And so Bruno went, Bruno went on Thursday to Washington and, and, and went with Vince and, and reminded Vince what I had done. And he said to Vince, he said, I'm sure you've taken good care of him. And of course, light went on with Vince and he said, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you know, he, you know, we, we, we taken care of him. And so the next show I, I they ran a fairgrounds or something in Reading and I, they didn't cause the commission would assign him. And I, I didn't get assigned to every show, but I would go and be there just in case, you know, that something happened or they, you know, they needed somebody and Phil Zacco saw me and, most of me took me around the corner, pulled a lot of money out of his pocket, counted out $200, wadded it in his hand, handed it to me and said, here, Vince wants you to have this. And so it just, uh, never forgot that. That's, that's things you, that's things you hear about Bruno that made him such a popular champion, not only with the fans, but with the guys backstage, because yep. Bruno was, was a wrestler and he'd come up the hard way. And I, yep. I've always heard those stories. Of course, you know, he's always in the Northeast, but I always heard those stories, how he were always really looked at for the talent, especially the, the young, fresh talent that he, yep. that he realized would have a future in this business. So he, he saw that. He did it in a quiet way that, he would never come back to you and say, I took care of this. He, 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 that wasn't how Bruno was. Bruno would do it and never say anything to you. And then somebody would come and hand you the money. And then, you know, he might say after that, uh, did you see Zacho? This? Yeah, I did. And he came, pulled me off and, and uh, counted out another $200, which to a kid in college at that point, that was like, that was like, Eight hundred, a thousand dollars today. And yeah, I was getting twenty-five dollars a month for wrestling on scholarship. So I tell you what, yeah. two hundred dollars was back in those But that's that's you know why Bruno was uh uh he was because that's just how he was. And 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 I had heard that Vince would get on him sometimes about Bruno being paid as well as he was. Then why do you stick up for these guys? You know, and and Bruno would just he wouldn't even give him an answer because it just was, that's how he was. He, it, he did it because in his mind, it was the right thing to do, which it was. And he didn't have to do it. He did not have to do it. And nobody ever asked him to go to bat for him. Uh, he just did it because that's the kind of guy he was. And, and because he knew it was the right thing to do. JJ, you uh, mentioned also in one of the interviews I saw, I think it was on Hannibal TV uh, about gorilla monsoon playing the piano. And yes. I didn't know that. I'd never heard that before. I, I knew Gorilla, and Gorilla hooked me up one time. Got how much money. We're in Vegas. You know, he, he loved to play the cards and gamble, and yeah. he had a suite, and he let me stay in it because he knew I'd never had a nice place to stay before, which was so cool. He didn't really know me that well, and he, and he still hooked me up. Uh, but I'd never heard that before about Bruno, about uh, Gorilla. Yeah. He, the, he's a really good pianist. The Wednesday show in Philly, they, they had a – a theater in the basement of, uh, of, of that building. And it was like a mini 
movie theater. They had a stage where they could drop a screen and there was, I don't know, maybe a hundred, 150 seats. And it was like a theater. It's swooped up in the back and there was a thing in the back where they could show a movie or whatever. And that's where the wrestling took place. And they would, the, the, they had a little scaled down ring that would, that would, that was made for that stage that uh, was just the right height. And Bruno or uh, Monsoon lived in, in uh, Paulsboro, New Jersey, which was, so he would be there Wednesday when they would do the studio thing. And he would basically, basically run things. And, and they had a, uh, uh, a classical piano, you know, the thing with the, where the lid came up and whole thing. And, and I, I, more than once I would, watch monsoon get there early and they'd still have the piano on the stage and they would have to push the piano back in the corner in order to clear the stage to put the ring up. And I watched him more than once sit down and, uh, and play that piano. He was, uh, he went to Ithaca college. He was a very smart guy and a very gifted guy and a great guy period. One thing I didn't know about you, JJ was, uh, I saw it was that you had a big long program with uh, my, one of my old tag team partners who I, I idolized, Dick Murdoch, who happens oh, to be God, a fantastic yes. Texan who dislikes Oklahoma. So he's obviously a very smart man. <laughs> but Dick Murdoch was uh, your big rival in uh, Amarillo, right? Oh, and well, he made me. And, and like I say, Dickie was at least two inches taller than me. And a, and a good 20, 30 pounds heavier. So if you looked at the two of us and didn't know, you know, and, and I didn't hear me on interviews, they loved Dick Murdoch. They loved him because he was one of them. And they hated me because I ran my mouth. I was the, I was a city boy from New Jersey with a silver spoon in my mouth that, that just took everything for granted. And they hated me. And um, the fans in Amarillo were they came every week it was a weekly show and they 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 would have their seats and i i may not have known them by name but i certainly knew them by and, and by their appearance and their their seats were they were they had that seat that was their permanent seat and it would be passed from generation to generation it was just uh just a wonderful wonderful time in the business it really was you There's probably that. a few of them there that looked like JBL since it was so close to his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that uh, Dory Funk Sr. had a huge outsized influence on uh, wrestling, uh, the business completely. Uh, sorry, that was uh, Jerry Briscoe calling me. It, <laughs> I tried to, <laughs> tried to get rid of it. You mentioned Dory Funk Sr. had an outsized influence on the business through Eddie Graham and through yep. later through Dusty. Explain what you're talking about, how Dory Sr. had such an influence on so much of the territories in wrestling. Yeah, one, I mean, once the, per, the person who had the greatest impact on my career was Eddie Graham. And back when I, when I was still like a fan and I would go to the garden, I would see Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham and Gerald would, uh, Jerry Graham, Dr. Jerry Graham would be the one that was, he did all the talking. He was very obnoxious and flamboyant all with the big cigar. And, and Eddie would stand there stoically and you never heard a word. You never spoke. You never hear a word from him. And then once, once uh, you know, you, you get on the other side of the business 
you know, I started hearing about how, uh, how Eddie had influenced so many people that he, and, and it traced back to, to Dory senior and, and passed on down the, and, and he just, he was a, a tremendous student of the, of the business. And, and when Eddie got to Florida, uh, you know, you had, uh, God, you had coach John Heath, you had the Don Curtis, Don Curtis. Yes. The, the guys that were there with, it just was a wonderful time to be in the business and, and to, you know, to just to be around these guys and Eddie, um, it's funny. I, 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 I finally wanted, I got a, a relationship with Eddie and I, I, I so much wanted to work for him. And at the time, uh, Oh God, he wore a mask. He was one of the bolos. It was the booker down there. And Jody Hamilton, Jody Hamilton. And, and he did a great job. Yeah. And I, in talking to Eddie at one time, he said, you know, he said, uh, he said, and he, he said, in the, he said, in the meantime, I came back from Japan. I worked uh, uh, for Stu Hart for a week and I didn't have a place to go. And Eddie had told me before I left, he's call me when you get back. And so when I got back, I was in Calgary and I, I, I called Eddie and Eddie said, well, he said, Jody is my booker now. And he said, Jody's doing a, a good job, a respectable job. And he said, I owe it to him to have him have an opportunity to accomplish everything that he could. So he said that it would just, it wouldn't be the right thing to do to pull the rug around out from under him to create a position for you. So he said, I'm making a few calls. He said, call me in a couple of days. And he, I called him a couple of days and he said, I've got something for you. And he said, and he, and he kind of, it, where what it was was Bob Geigel in Kansas City, and it was a place that not there wasn't a waiting list on guys to to go work mm -hmm. Kansas City because it was you know the the wasn't great money you'd get a good payday to go to St Louis once a month, and Eddie told me he said Geigel's having you know he's struggling the money's not that great but he said I got you a, a you know a guarantee that you you could be okay to put food on the table and he said. I would consider it a personal favor if you would go there and, and help him out because he's one of the good guys in the business. And it was a, which is what I did. And I learned a lot from being around Bob Geigel and from being, from being in, in Kansas city for that, uh, for that period of time. And then cause, uh, Eddie, then by that time, uh, the other booker moved on and created an opportunity for me to, to go to Florida. And, uh, that's, that's what I dreamed to go to work for work for Eddie Graham. Cause he, he had a reputation of, of being such a, and I, I remember seeing it firsthand, like on Tuesday nights in Tampa, the dressing room was up on the, so you had to go, you came from the parking lot in the back, you go up a flight of stairs and there was a room up there and there was a hallway and the, the baby faces would be at the one end, the heels of the other, but there was a connecting door in the middle that, that the two could get together and, and, and sit down. So the, when it, when it finished, you know, they would let the guys work out the finish for the main event. And I'm sitting over in the heel side and I don't remember who the, the particulars were, but they were guys that, you know, were, had good minds for the business. And I, I, I'm, I'm behind Eddie and I watched Eddie and Eddie takes a chair and he, he just slides over where he's, 
He's listening to the conversation that he's not a direct part of, and he lets it run its course. He let them put together what they thought was going to be a great finish for that night. And then after they had all settled, oh, this, yeah, that's good. You know, well, they thought they had a really, really good finish. And Eddie would then slide over and he said, did you, did you think, think about this? And he threw one little seed out there. Yeah, hadn't thought about that. And so without Eddie putting down what they had come up with or without him dominating the conversation, he just, in his own way, kind of planted the seed. And then, then they basically pulled him into the conversation. And pretty soon, Eddie is helping to put the whole thing together. And I'm watching this, and I'm and that, that was the one time when I could just really appreciate how his true genius. And, and uh, I, what was great, too, was, uh, and then he, he uh, had me as, uh, he, he had my first shot at booking, and then he uh, kind of looked over my shoulder and, and was, was guiding me without, he, he, was, he was building confidence in me, but, but it was with a lot of help from him that was from the sidelines that other people, you know, weren't even aware of. And, he, and what, like Tallahassee, like to two main, Friday night, they had Tallahassee, which was a 275-mile trip to the north out of, uh, out of Tampa. And Fort Lauderdale was about 245 miles down to the south, to the far end of the territory. And Mike Graham had a, had a sweetheart, I guess, down. In, so he was, he, was, he was every Friday in Fort Lauderdale. And I'm Saturday, you know, up in, uh, in Tallahassee, which was not, not the better of the, of the two towns. And fine. And Eddie said, and anyway, <laughs> he said, I want, he said, I want to, he said, I want to, I'd like to help you. And he, he called me and asked me and he said, you, you book what you want to do up there. And then he had me run it by him. And, and, and finally he said, he said, I, I can see, you know, your thought process and I can see how your mind works and you've got a wonderful mind for this business. And he said, you, you're, you're willing to, to learn and grow. And Eddie said, I'd like to, to uh, kind of help the town out that's just getting by, not doing great. And he said, I'd like to come up to Tallahassee and work a three-week program with you. Well, <laughs> this is Eddie Graham. And he, he flew his own airplane and Eddie didn't need to work. He was a great worker, but he, he, it's not like he needed that thing. He was doing it to help me. And for three weeks, that's what he did. He laid out a three, uh, a three week program and we did sell out business. So, I mean, it was good money wise for me and, and it, uh, it helped me build a, a relationship with Eddie to, to be able to allow him to, uh, to mentor me. Was that when uh, you were also you were booking? Was that with Tommy? You're booking alongside with Dusty. Was that when uh, the partnership was formed with with you guys? Yeah, that that well, what happened was, it was. I I, I finally got a chance to, to, you know, to book in Florida, but the only person that was there was Don Jardine, the spoiler, who was a great talent, by the way, and but I had no no talent depth. I, Charlie Cook, who was a wonderful human being, 
but Charlie was not the hottest attraction in terms of, of uh, selling tickets. And so I really was, I had great ideas. I could put together a good television show, but I just didn't have the depth, depth of talent. And that's when I realized that you can have the best ideas in the world, but your ideas only bear fruit when you have talent of the level to take whatever idea and, and, and then make it play out that I realized then how important that you could have the greatest ideas in the world, but if you don't have the talent to, to, and that's why all the great bookers like Dusty and, and, and Eddie helped him because Dusty, he, he would have Dusty come in and then because Dusty was coming in, other guys wanted to be there because they knew Dusty was going to pop the territory. So they became kind of Dusty's guys. And Eddie was, Eddie was, I don't know, manipulation sounds like a, I wish I could think of a better word, but he, he guided the whole thing without, without taking over. And he allowed, and then and Dusty at that point was going to, New York every month and he was featured in the garden. He was getting a good payoff up there. And so then the, he talked to Dory and Terry Funk and they were going to come in and work some dates and they, they, you know, they were huge box office, but they didn't want to move to Florida. They didn't want to relocate. So Dory and Terry said that they would be co-bookers, but they told Eddie that the only way that they would agree to it was if I was part of the, part of the, the of, a, of a team with them and that um i would be there i'd be the one in the in the be in the office every day and what have you because they didn't want to they didn't want to move to florida and they could, could come in and out and and god we had an incredible run and that's when dusty came back and when dusty came in uh when dusty came back he he was he was going to get his first opportunity to be a booker and I, I always think the world of Dusty because when that happened, he told Eddie, he said, the only way that I'll come in and do it was he said, not coming in to replace me, but to have me to be his, his, um, I don't know. They didn't call you co-book or whatever, but he said he, he, I had to stay on and be, be part of that, be part of that team. And so it, uh, I, I never forgot that about Dusty, that he didn't need to do that because Dusty was the attraction. He came in and Dusty popped it because he came in, but he made me be a part of it so that, uh, you know, that I, a lot of credit went to me because he he treated us, you know, like, like a team and it developed a relationship with Dusty. And then when Dusty, uh, I went, the, the Carolinas uh, were, uh, Crockett was finally going to blow open the, and he and was bringing in good talent and he was going to bring Dusty in. And Dusty said the only way that he would come into the Carolinas is if uh, <coughs> I came in with him to work in the office as a co-booker. And that's how I got my opportunity there. So Dusty would always, he just had a special place in my heart because that, uh, And then, then when you got in the Carolinas, uh, that's when uh, the legendary faction got together. Yes. It's just all, you know, 
Arn had been down in Pensacola and Arn came in and it just was Oli and Oli, Oli didn't want to work every night. His son uh, was uh, an amateur wrestler and he was in high school and, and Oli wanted to have Friday off to go see his son, son compete. And so it was just a, it was just a, it was a good time to, to be in there. And, uh, I did, I did, I had a hell of a run and it helped establish my reputation in the business because I had a lot of help from a lot of people. It wasn't, it wasn't because I had, you know, this, this brilliant mind. I mean, I, you know, I love the business. I, one thing I found really interesting was the, the origin of the four horsemen name that, that uh, just kind of happened, which is yeah. how the best things in the business kind of happen. You know, it's not something you can plan. It's yep. organic, but tell, tell the story about Arn Anderson, the yeah. horseman and how it came about. And it was, they were, Arn came up from Pensacola and there were the, the four guys came together. It was, uh, God, it was, I mean, Flair wasn't. Arn and Oli, Tully and, and Rick. Yes. And you guys ended up having to go out on TV together because you had an eight man tag later that night. Yeah. And you cut a promo just because time was short or something. And that's where Arn came up with the name. It was a two minute, you know, we had a two minute slot. And what was great was you had one of the greatest talkers in the business, Flair, who stood there in a, in a two-minute interview and never said a word. <laughs> and I remember before we went out there, you know, Arn, which which would happen because it wasn't like a lot of thought went in ahead of time. And Arn said, "I have an idea. Let me let me run with it. Go." And he started out, and that's when he told the story about. Uh, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He said, take a look at your, at your screen. He said, you have, you have four giants of our in the straight. And he said, the only thing that I can think of, he said, is uh, outside of the realm of the wrestling business. He said, is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he <laughs> held up the four fingers and the interview was over. And it was a great interview. And then we went, we would finish TV and have to get on a plane and go like to work a house show in Greensboro that night. We get to Greensboro and we're, and we get in the ring and uh, they had a row of heel fans that always dressed with a, with a shirt and tie and a jacket. And they, and so they started chanting horsemen, horsemen and holding up the, the, the four. And it was, it, it grew from that. It was. It wasn't something that somebody had the idea. Well, it's. It was something that the fans created, which is why it was so great. And it just grew, and, and other people would see it. And I remember going like it was in Tampa, where there here's this sun dome, and all the way up top, you know, you could see people that filled this bowl with, with people that that sold out. And I look up, and and I could see, and I couldn't hear the person, I couldn't, but all I could see was this. <laughs> hold that out and that's how it started and it grew from something that just aren't throughout there and and i think that's why the some of the most successful things that that people talk about in the business started as something just as simple as that did you have a favorite uh four horsemen group you know there were so many different iterations of four yeah horsemen. you know Oli was in first did you have a favorite group you know i get asked that question a lot and 
and I, I dodged around because I said, well, I, I, I can't really give you a, a simple answer because I have to look at the original horseman with Ole Anderson. And if he had not been there and been part of that group, none of it to follow would have, would have happened. And then when Barry came in, I said, here is, I mean, you got Flair, you got Tully, you got Orton, and you got Barry Windham. And I said to me, once Barry came in there, because he had the, <clears throat> he was tall, he had the youthful good looks and the blonde hair and the girls were crazy over him. And I said, when Barry came in, I said, to me, that was, I can't say the greatest, but, and then what happened, which happens in promoters take something that's, uh, like the four horsemen and, and after Barry, they, there were other guys that came in pretty soon sting who was, they, they were calling him a horseman. Well, how do you call sting? Uh, you know, it was like the promoters took and bastardized it. But, uh, once the thing with Barry was there, uh, to me, that's when the, the true horseman thing really concluded, but it was a spontaneous thing that all that uh, has to credit has to go to Arn. He's the one that, that came up with a symbol and, and gave us the name. JJ, you had perhaps two, four of the, the greatest performers ever in, in the history of our business. And uh, we all know and we all have it, uh, but you, you did more than you just go out there and, and as, as a TV mouthpiece and as a TV sidekick. You had to handle all these guys travel. You had to handle the hotels. You had to handle them ha putting all those egos in one car. And I know you guys like to travel in one car because you're yeah. a four horseman. But massaging all those egos, that had to be a job. And I know they were there because I know the four guys. I'm not yeah. saying anything bad about them because they're four of the greatest guys in the world. And, and they deserve to have as big ego as they can. But you, as their manager, mouthpiece and sidekick and kind of overall business manager it had to be a tough job to kind of settle these guys down every once in a while there had to be conflict when you get that many outstanding guys together you're going to have a few conflicts i was blessed with a personality where where i i played an important important role without being somebody that was looked at as being important in other words i had great relationships with, with all of these guys and then in another time where it really came to fruition was when Dusty came in <clears throat> and Dusty bless him was a great talent and he had an ego to match. And I, I think that that was part of why Dusty was so successful because he had that ego right. and you know, he would come into the office and Dusty took the job with the understanding that, uh, that I was his assistant and I, had the office right next to him. And then Jimmy Crockett was there. And what was good was Flair and Dusty would finally have, the, they were, they were the captains at the opposite side of the ring and, and each had their, their people surrounding them. But sometimes their egos would come close to, 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 to clashing. And I could sense and it didn't happen very often, maybe twice a year, where I could see it boiling over and, and about to come to a thing that was going to be, could have been, it could have been catastrophic to, to, if it had played out that some of these guys were, 
they 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 lose track of the fact of how successful everything was and would <laughs> would risk losing it all because you know the, the their ego would and i i when it happened like I say it was maybe twice a year and it, and it was mainly down to flair and dusty were the two were the two guys and i'm i'm in the i'm in uh, the dressing room with flair every night and Dusty's in the office and he would come in sometimes and he would say, don't you ever talk to him? <laughs> and it would be like, yeah, you know, and it's like, I, I, I didn't even know how to answer that. And then we get to the point where it was about to boil over and I, 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 I go see Jimmy Crockett and I say, can I have a couple of minutes of your time? He said, come in, close the door. What's going on? And I'd say, this thing is about to come to a head. I said, because, you know, uh, Dusty is Dusty. And they said, you've had this relationship with Flair here in the Carolinas where you're the one person that could, could, could make this thing somehow cool down before it gets out of hand and, and explodes over. And Jimmy would, he, he would just, he would, it, nobody ever knew that I had that conversation with Jimmy. And then what would happen was because the relationship went back to that, where earlier Jimmy would have Flair come over to the house with him and Myron to have dinner and, and in their home. And he'd invite Flair to come over and have dinner. And he had, and, and, and he went and got dusty a, a Mercedes convertible to ride around with. And so Neither of them knew that that because I'm in the trenches every night and could see this reaching a boiling point where it could have exploded and would have been hard to fix and got to Jimmy's ear before it got to that point. Folks don't understand, uh, JJ, just what what a job that is. I mean, uh, you know, you got, like I said, you're four, four of the greatest of all time there. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we all have our, our days and everything. But to have somebody with a relationship with the office that, that you had where you're right there in the office and uh, to have somebody like that, I mean, if you hadn't been negotiating this thing, this thing could have imploded and the, in the yeah. four horsemen just gets going by the wayside because sometimes those egos prevail, as we all know, in this business, and it destroys a good thing. But having somebody, and I always describe you as a, the most non-confrontational person I've ever met. You do the smoothest head. You, you, you're able to analyze things very quickly and uh, diffuse problems like that. And that, that, that was your, that was your road, not only to get heat out in the ring, but to solve the heat in the backstage area, which was most important at that time. Yeah. And like I say, it, and it would, it would slowly be building because both of them had strong personalities and, they were doing great business, but sometimes those it gets to the point where it's going to be really confrontational. And that, and when I I would sense that they, it was getting to that point that it was going to get out of control, and something might happen to trigger it, and then it'd be hard to fix. And before it got to that point, uh, I had that kind of relationship with Jimmy. I'd just say, Jimmy, can I have a couple minutes with you? Come in, close the door, and he'd say, What's going on? And because Jimmy wasn't in the dressing room every night. And didn't and and it wasn't that he didn't have control of his business. He did, but 
sometimes you have a different perspective when you're out there in the trenches and you see these two two forces that are so important the to the success of where the business was that it's like a juggling act you know you you keep the balls rolling and you don't you don't favor one over the other it's just you keep you want to join that success and and have it go on as long as ever and so i had that that thing. I don't think Jimmy Crockett ever gets enough credit for his business sense and his, 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 his you know, like you say, when Jimmy did something, you never know it. You never knew it was done because Jimmy would do it in such a way and in such a professional way. I mean, you and I both were fortunate enough to work for Jim Crockett Sr. and, and Jim yep. Crockett Jr. The, 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 the similarities between the two of them were so similar, you know, because Jim Sr. was the same way. He had that calm, cool, collective mind. And you look at Jimmy and sometimes you think, aren't you doing anything? But this guy, he's busting his ass. I don't think Jimmy gets enough credit in, in our business for, for what he put together. I mean, he put together a dynasty, man, before yep. dynasties were built. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you look back, it's, I, I think back that I was so blessed to, to be in the mix during that time of what I call the glory years where God business was just so good because you had all the pieces that you need. You know, you, you can have a, a road warriors in one corner, but you got to have somebody across that ring that, uh, the, you know, and that's where Magnum TA and whatever before his accident, the, and then Jimmy Valiant, the, the challenge, you got to have that balance. You you can't, somebody can't be so powerful that they dominate everything. You have to have that balance. And and juggling that is, uh, that's the challenge sometimes. And I was, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, I, ble I was blessed with the personality to be able to, to see what was going on and to be able to, to help situations without, me being a focal point without them realizing, you know, I, they, they didn't know that I had that conversation with Jimmy and then Jimmy got the heads up that this was about to blow up in his face. And before it does, you know, and that's when he, and the next day, you know, I would see flair and he'd say, God, he said, it was like old times. He said, Jimmy called me out of the blue and says, why don't you come over to the house and have dinner with Myra and I tonight? And he said, Oh, he said it was like we talked about the old and that that personal touch. Oh, but it, it AJ, all, yeah. when uh, going forward just a little bit, you know, when Turner uh, ended up buying out uh, Crockett and then you end up going to work up in New York during that time. But during that time, you had that incredible federal trial, uh, which Vince McMahon was found not guilty on all charges. But you had the federal government going after someone. And you never know what outcome is going to be. Nope. When Federal government throwing everything they got at somebody, whether they're guilty or not. Vince was Vince was convinced that when the government invests that much in going after somebody, they're going to get their pound of flesh. He was convinced that they were going to get him on something that he was going to do some time. He really was. And one of the options that you had to kind of help out, maybe not replace Vince, but one of the things you had was bringing in Jerry Jarrett. That yep. was your idea because of your admiration for Jerry Jarrett as a very intelligent guy who kind of come up the same way as Vince or a talent, as a promoter, as a booker, as an owner. And then you brought up uh, Jerry Jarrett during that time. Yep. Talk a little bit about that time with Jerry and, and Vince and how crazy that was. Well, I had worked. I had met. I had Kendo Nagasaki that I was managing in Florida. And so 
Jared came down first and I forget who he came down with for a Bayfront show and, and saw, you know, the chemistry that Kendo and I had and, and how hot we were. And he, he wanted to know if <coughs> Memphis, Memphis was, was, was really struggling. And he said he needed some help. And, and he, he said, if, if, you know, if there was any possible way that we could come and that he knew that we would immediately, uh, well, actually what happened was Kendo went up and, and worked a couple of days with uh, dates on a Monday and just exploded the house. And so that's when, um, Jarrett said to, to Eddie and I, and I said, well, you know, I work for Eddie Graham, you know, where, whatever Eddie says is how it's, how it's going to be. And so, uh, they, they had me come up there and, and work Memphis on Mondays and bring and with Kendo coming up there, uh, it, 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 that turned that territory around and it was a great, great time. And Jerry was the one that, uh, during that time, that was kind of Vince's backup plan was in case something crazy happened that he didn't foresee Jerry Jarrett and you guys were going to end up taking over. Yeah. WWE at the time to run and, it. And I had I had a conversation with Vince, you know, because I was uh God, I it was a seven day a week thing, and I'd be in the office all week and then basically and then and and Pat Patterson the business was his whole life. And so Friday afternoon it would be like, well, he'd say to, to Vince, Well, what are, you, what are you doing tomorrow? And Vince would say, Well, you know, if you don't have anything to do, you know, give me a call is what he would say. Well, Saturday morning, Vince would, would Pat would call Vince and, and he'd say, why don't you, why don't you come over to the house and let's just kind of brainstorm and talk about, you know, because they, they were booking three towns a night and, and doing three TVs. And so Pat said to Vince that, uh, that he wanted to include me. And that's how that started. So I would, and, and I, I could never plan anything on weekends with my family, which, because, you know, it would be like on a Friday afternoon. Well, Pat, because Pat didn't have a life. I, I shouldn't say that, but Pat and Louie, their situation was different than mine. And I, I look forward to having time with my wife on the weekend uh, because the business really is so demanding. I, I couldn't plan anything for the day because it's like that call's coming and I would go to run to the store to get something. I'd come back and my wife would be there. Guess who called? Pat called. Give, give Pat a call. Well, Vince said, come on over and he'd like for you to join us. We would go over to the house. And in the summer times, he had a pool. And I watched. I didn't see Shane so much because he'd be off with his buddies. But I watched Stephanie grow up. She'd be there with his school went splishing and splashing in the pool. And they had a cabana out there with a bank of phones and we would work out outside in the, in the summer months when the weather was nice. And then the winter time we would be indoors and we'd sit around his uh, formal dining room table. And that's how everything, you know, how everything was done. And it was a, it was a, a, a great learning experience. I got so much uh, respect for Pat Patterson because Pat, Pat had done it all. Here's, here's a guy who worked on top in Frisco with, with Ray Stevens. They went to Minneapolis 
you would say, okay, well, maybe, maybe Frisco was, you know, some guys just catch on fire in a town and then that, that was it for them. Well, <coughs> they went to uh, Minneapolis and it was the same thing all over again. That Pat had that something about him. And um, I just, I just learned so much from being around him. Pat had it, the innate ability to understand what Vince liked and didn't like. There were certain things that Vince didn't like, you know, and so you learn what he didn't like and the things that he did like, you would feed it to him by the shovelfuls and the things that even though you might thought it was good and had potential, it was never brought up because you knew Vince didn't like it and he'd shut the conversation down. So it's, I don't want to say we manipulated Vince, but we just, we just knew what he liked and, 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 and gave it to him in as many different ways. Uh, and we're smart enough to know, well, this is something that maybe we like personally, but no, he doesn't. And so, you know, don't, don't fight that battle because you're not going to win. And you know, he doesn't like it no matter how good you think it is. And we were doing well enough that it was just, it was a great time in the business. And I learned so much from being around Pat. Pat to me was the one, I worked with a lot of, a lot of great minds in the business, but to me, Pat was the best of them all. In, in 1995, around that era, was area, when I came in, we had the roster that became the Attitude Era, uh, and we still had Hall, Nash, and, and Bret Hart, who ended up going down being, you know, that incredible NWO angle. We didn't have Hogan. Hogan was not on the scene for anyone at that at, I don't think at that point, maybe, maybe WCW at that time. Was that, to me, to me, that was probably one of the most loaded rosters of all time because you had – everybody there who became the big stars. Now they were not necessarily yeah. in the right characters. You know, you had Eisen Yankum who became Kane. You had the, the ringmaster who became stone cold, you know, and yep. Helmsley who became triple H uh, and it, several of those guys like that. How was that roster compared to the great Crockett rosters uh, that drew so much money in the late eighties? I just think that, that what was Crockett had, when especially when Arn came in, just caught fire, and the same thing happened years later with different, with you know, with with, diff, with different people, and it's like you have to recognize it when it's right there in front of you, and say okay, because it's the it's the the, the judge and jury are the fans. You, you can't say, I'm going to take these guys and I'm going to make a star out of them um, because that just, it doesn't work. The fans are the judge and jury. And if, and you have to be able to learn to listen to, and the fans will tell you if, if, if you're smart enough to, to just shut up and then don't think that you got it all figured out and let them, let them help guide you. And then when you get, when you get the little hints about what they want and you learn to, to feed it to them. We, we had this great big ledger where we would have like three towns a night and we would have the TVs and, and uh, the every third week and pay-per-views and, and Pat and I would have this big book and we, we had a, a sheet, which with all the list of the baby faces and a list of the heels and kind of in a, 
not not in a specific order, but you know the top guys, and the, you had like three levels. And when you were booking towns, that was your your thing for how you know if it's an A town, I need two strong main events and a semifinal. The next one, I need two strong things, and then that that C town, you you needed a strong uh, one finish, and then you could you could fill the thing out. So it it was a learning experience to uh, to 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 see all that that play out, and 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 as you pointed out, John the the depth of talent during that period of time was just unbelievable. And that uh, there were so many people contributing to what went on. And it just was a wonderful time to be in the business. And a lot of times Pat and I would be going over something and the Hulk would call and Vince would say, uh, that's uh, Stephanie or somebody comes to the Hulk's on the phone. And he'd have a bank of phones there, but Hulk would, or uh, he would go in the house to take the call from Hulk. And now Pat and I are out there, and we're limited to what we could do because, you know, the whatever we would come up with, but the final blessing has to, you know, has to come from Vince. And you know, JJ, that that that's, that was the biggest problem I ever had. And Pat, Pat, you're right. Pat Patterson's one that also taught me how to deal with that because when I come up, you know, I'm from the South and I thought I knew everything and I, I get Vince's face almost. And Pat said, you're doing it all the wrong way. That's the reason he says no to you every time you can't, you can't, you can't tell Vince he's wrong. You got, you got to yep. work around. You got to grab what he says, grab just a little issue from what Vince says and, and then take your ideal and expand it from there. And that, yeah, that's that, Jerry, Pat Patterson had that great, great to mind like that. Hey Jerry, I, you know Vince, Vince might not have just liked people from Oklahoma. I think that I, you know what? I think you got a point there. <laughs> now, there's, a of, there's a few of us, you know that. Uh, but the 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 beauty of it was, it was a time in the business where you had a Pat Patterson who instinctively knew Vince's likes and dislikes, and um, you know I learned a lot from him, and. It, what happened was I was uh, working with Terry Garvin and in right when Crockett sold to Turner or whatever it was there. And then I, I was down there and uh, one day uh, Terry comes in and he said, this thing with gotten so big up there with, uh, with what Vince's operation is that he and Pat, he said, and they're doing it all. And he said, they're being, they're, they're being spread so thin that they, that they need help. And he said, there are great minds in the business. He said, but you have to be somebody special that could work into that environment with what they had to offer and with their skills and their input and not come in and, and dominate the scene, but to, 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 to fit with it. And he said, and then this was Terry Garvin. He said, you're the perfect person. So Terry, Terry was going up there running town. He went up there running towns. And I think Terry was uh, somebody who, uh, cause I didn't know Pat. I met Pat finally one, one time when he came to see, uh, to see Terry, but Terry was the one that was increasing the value of my stock during that whole period of time. 
And so when it got to, it finally said it got so big that it's too much for Vince and Pat. They need help. And there are not a lot of people out there that could step into that environment and be able to, to gel with them. He said, I can't think of anybody but you. And he said, uh, your name has been mentioned. And he said, every time your name is mentioned, he said, whoever it is has good things to say about you. And that's how that opportunity presented itself. And I finally went up there and it was a turning point in my career. One thing that was a turning point in a career is for the guy who became, I, I guess, the, the biggest movie star of all time, and that's The Rock. Uh, yeah. The Rock came in and didn't have much money. Nope. And came, we came to you one time, I guess, at Madison Square Garden was the story I heard. And he wanted out of the business. He only had yeah. a few dollars in his wallet. And tell oh. a story about you uh, pretty much saving, uh, I guess, The Rock. He, he probably would have made it somewhere else, but it, it certainly wouldn't have been as stratospheric a rise as it was in the WWE. He called me off to this because, you know, I, 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 I was able to talk to to everybody. I I just had that kind of personality where I, I listened more than I talked, I guess is what, what it was part of my success. But, uh, rocks, you know, he, he, he was going to get the push of his life, but couldn't see at that point how really big that opportunity was going to be for him. And he was, he had everything. He was multiracial. He had the size. He had athletic ability. He had everything. And I came up there and he said, I don't, can I talk to you privately? And I said, yeah. And he said, he said, you have connections everywhere. So he said, I'm asking you help, help me get out of here and find a place for me to go. So I, I listened to him and I said, there's more to this story than what you're telling me. I said, you need to, you need to kind of trust me and open up to me and tell me what, what's going on in your head. What, what's really, really troubling you. And after talking about it a little bit, he reached in his pocket and he had a $10 bill and a couple singles. And he said, this is all the money I have to my name. And he said, I've never been in a situation where everybody talks about this great potential that I have, but for me, it's, I have 12 bucks in my pocket and that's eating away at me. And I said, well, I'm glad that you opened up to me and told me, he said, because that's something that uh, can be an easy fix. So I went on, I don't know where we were. I was somewhere, we were in a town and I said, go up to the box office and pull $200 and I'll sign for it and I'll work it out, you know, however. And they came to me, came, gave me $200 in cash, called the rock over. And I he said, shake my hand, shook a hand. And I palmed him $200 in cash. And he said, now you got money in your pocket. And he said, you can, you can eat, you can, you're, you're okay. This is just a little speed bump in the road. And he said, you, you I couldn't do justice to the business by allowing you to to just not take full advantage of this opportunity because you just caught in a position where you don't have any cash in your pocket. And we've all been there, all been there. And he gave me a big hug and, and uh, that, that was a turning point for him that just having that money in his pocket uh, so that he could eat, do what he wanted. And uh, 
I just was the right place at the right time and knew the right thing to do. I, I go back, my history goes back to Vince Sr. When I was uh, uh, my second year of college is when I started to referee. And they were doing that weekly TV show. in, uh, And then Vince Sr. would come in for the big shows once a month that would either be at the, the arena or convention hall. And, and he, he would come in for that. And I don't know why, but he, he took a, a liking to me and, and I, it was the beginning of a relationship. And uh, later on, I, re I remember he, uh, he was, he was a heavy smoker senior was, and, uh, he came back, came down with lung cancer. So this was about six months before he passed away. And he was kind of like, not, you know, Barnett was kind of taking care of their business. And Vince, Vince was not hands-on because of his health issues. And Eddie came in one day. And I was booking, and Eddie would come in, and I used to treasure the time. He'd come in the door, and there'd be a hallway, and there was a, a lounge chair there. And Eddie would plop down, and I would just force myself to not say anything, but just to see what Eddie had on his mind and what he wanted to talk about. And just, in other words, I was under the Eddie Graham learning tree from from day one in that in that in that situation. And in one of those conversations, you know, we could talk openly about anything and everything. And I, and I said to him one day, I said, you know, I, God just seems like yesterday when I was uh, in Trent, New Jersey, where I'm from. And I used to go up to the garden every month and I would see Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham. And Jerry was the, 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 you know, he was the one smoking cigars, did all the interviews. And I said, and Eddie just stood there very stoic, never said anything. And it was only years later when, when I understood that <coughs> what Jerry did was important to the success, but the real genius behind the whole thing was Eddie Graham. And, and I said, uh, I remember I used to dream that, that, that the kid from Trenton, maybe someday himself could be a wrestler. And, and appear in Madison Square Garden. And at that point, I was kind of had been more of a manager at that point. My what I had some success with my career and and had some regional belts and what have you. But I was more more a manager, and I was managing Archie Goldie, the Stomper. And and when Eddie came in that one day, I I said something about God. It just seems like yesterday I went to the garden to see you and Dr. Jerry, and and I used to dream that uh, maybe one day I could be a wrestler too, and that I I could appear in the garden. I I I, I get emotional even talking about it. But Eddie never never said anything. He never commented. He left, and. Eddie then called Vince Senior at home, who was was at that time probably six months 
and he, you know, the early stages of lung cancer and, and Eddie called Vince and said that I'm, I'm working for him in the office and, and he's, he's very happy with the raw talent that I have. And he was trying to mentor to him, mentor me, but he said, and one of the conversation was, he was brought up about Madison square garden. And he said that he used to go to the garden and that was like, you know, they're bigger arenas, everybody, Madison square garden is, you know, it's it. And, and I, I just said, well, you know, now I'm more of a manager and, and not full-time wrestler chances of me working in the garden. Uh, it's, it's something that probably passed me by. So senior tells Eddie, he said, well, <laughs> We need to fix that. And whew. so Vince Sr. told Eddie, he said, you go and get his date book. And he said, you work out. And he did what the garden dates were. And he said, make sure he doesn't book himself uh, around that date. And he said, uh, I'll get with Barnett. And he said, we will fly him from Tampa up to the New York, put him up in a nice hotel and he will live his dream and work the garden. Whew. And I have the, uh, the insert from that thing. It was Monday, April 23rd of 1984. <laughs> and the main event that night was uh, Sergeant Slaughter against the Iron Sheik. <laughs> Greg the Hammer Valentine was against uh, Bob Backlund. Tito Santana was supposed to wrestle one of the Samoans. And it was a six-man match with Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, and Dr. D. David Schultz against Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, and uh, Ivan Putsky. And then Ryan Blair was on there and something else. And... When I got there, they, because uh, uh, they were taping for the Garden Network, so they they said, well, you know, could, because I had worked with Tito Santana, had his first match with me uh, when he was leaving West Texas State, as did Ted DiBiase. So I I had a history with him, and, and somebody said, well, you know, would you work with him? I said, be a night off for me, and, you know, wouldn't be a problem putting him over. I said, please, it would be an honor for me to do so. That night in the garden, that's who I wrestled was Tito Santana. And at that point, you know, all of a sudden I'm not like when you're wrestling a full-time schedule and, and Gerald, you relate to this when you're and John, you tend to, when you're wrestling every night, you get in, in uh, a different kind of shape that you can never replicate when you're working like just weekends or a couple times a month. It just, you, 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 your, your time and everything, it, it throws everything off. So now I'm worried that I'm going to finally get my chance to appear in Madison Square Garden against Tito Santana, who had his first ever match with me. So he's somebody I'm very comfortable with, but I'm worried about going up there and, uh, and embarrassing myself. So as it turned out, they were taping for the Garden Network. I still have a copy of that tape, and it was like eight or ten minute match. And the commentary for the Garden Network was Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson. <laughs> and and I was not a known. This was like the some of the Florida tapes came up there, but I'd never worked the New York territory, so I really and even though it was where I was from, they didn't know me. Their audience didn't know me, so to 
to talk about that match was very hard to talk like you would about it on the other match because basically the one to, to the audience that they're talking to, uh, it's an, he's an unknown. So as I listened to the thing, they, they talked about the match and they talked about anything and everything else, probably except maybe 15% of what happened in the ring in an eight or 10 minute match where, where, uh, where Tito went over, but I got to live my dream and, and appear in Madison square garden. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's just people don't understand, you know, Bret Hart used to say it may not be holy, but that's sacred ground. Talking about Madison Square Garden. Yes. There's yep. nothing like that arena. You know, once you finally get there, everybody says that. Basketball players say that. Yeah. Rutgers say that. Boxers say that. Of all the arenas in the world, Madison Square Garden to me. And that is that, true. I had wrestled in Boston Garden. I've been in the Maple Leaf Gardens. I've been in Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. But I'd never been in Madison Square Garden. And Madison Square Garden uh was a was the name of the of the venue in New York that over a period of years was actually four or five different locations. And it, it finally ended up uh that it was above the uh uh the train Railway. station. Penn above, station. Yeah, above Penn Station. But prior to that it was in three or four different locations around the city. But it was still it was Madison Square Garden. And if you appeared in Madison Square Garden I don't think it, it's like <clears throat> when I <laughs> was going to have my active career, I kind of had like a bucket list that before in my own mind that I could say that, okay, this was your dream and okay, you finally made it. But before I could say that all of the great s stars in the business had gone to Japan toward Japan, all of the great stars, going back to when Barnett had Australia and pioneered Australia. So if you, you couldn't think of yourself as being a top name in our business. So did you ever work Japan or did you ever work Australia? And did you ever appear in Madison square garden? And so I was blessed enough to, uh, to uh, actually, I, I, I went to Japan um, for giant Baba and I ended up there probably 15, 20 different times. And then I actually went to Australia uh, when I was managing Bulldog Brower and moved over there and lived, I'd actually lived in Australia. This was like 1980 for a year. And one of my great experiences in the world is you go someplace <coughs> when you're doing a one night thing in a, in a different place. It's not like going somewhere and, and living there for a period of time where you're around the people. And, and, Australia was a melting pot of, because it was a penal colony at one point. A lot of, a lot of people don't know that uh, that the, the England sent their prisoners to Australia. It was because it was an island, and and they they sent the rather than have them in a jail in England, send them in Australia. That's how it started as a penal colony, and Australia was as big as the United States, but. Uh, JJ, I think that's how Oklahoma started too. <laughs> I tell you, uh, JJ, as you can see, I have no luck, but uh, you're right, man. Working the garden that was such a special yeah. thrill for me. And Eddie Graham actually had a, a role in my first appearance at that Madison Square yeah. Garden. Also, uh, sent me and Paul Jones up there. And as you guys can recall, you know the magazines were all based out of there, of course, yep. and so. It, 
you wanted any promoter wanted any magazine cover uh, uh, stories, you always had to go to to New York. So, uh, you know, I was I was busting out and I was doing fairly good. So Eddie made that phone call for me, and I was able to make an appearance up there. And of course, I, after and all the magazines, George and and everybody, all the magazines. I, I made I made the magazine, but that was the whole purpose of Eddie sending me up there. I thought yeah. it was just because I was such a great performer. But no, <laughs> he wanted the publicity on me to get out so I could help draw money down here. So well, this was before the internet and before cable television, which right. changed it all. Once the 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 six oh five show from from uh, Florida Atlanta. from Atlanta came on that. You know that that was your ticket. If you were on that, show, was it Buzz Tyler and uh, Tommy Wildfire Rich? You know, made his career off of that because they were seen everywhere. And you'd go to Amarillo, and you you know you you when you went to a territory like you were in Amarillo every Tuesday Tuesday night. Well, you 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 get into programs and whatever and if you went to a territory you needed to stay for a while because you 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 have to rent an apartment sign a lease it's not like you come in for a month and leave because that way you're living in a hotel and and you can't make money in the business living like that you need um, for me i needed to go and i was fortunate that that uh, i was never the biggest or the best and it took me a while to get over but once i did i stayed over and so that I could have a run for that whole process plan out of usually about a year. And then before I was burned out at the back end, I knew it was time to move on so that I could come back at a later date, a couple of years later and, and do it all over again. So it just, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful time to be in the business. But I could say I wrestled in Madison square garden and I wrestled in the sumo palace in Japan and I wrestled in Australia. There were my, and then I went to Germany too. So a lot of people know me as a manager, but I, because I, I kept a, a, a book week at a, called Week at a Glance that, that I would do for my taxes. And so I knew what town I was in, how many miles I traveled to get there, or if it was an airline flight, or had to stay over with a hotel. And then at the end of the week, I would write down what my pay, when you got your check, or get my payoff and put it in there. And then, I think I think you and I were 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 ta uh, tag team one time in our in our fifty year plus career. And now you know where that was. That was in Japan. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, it's just uh, God. These memories. Uh, it's such a wonderful time to be in the business, and uh, it it'll never be like that again because <clears throat> times have changed. And. Uh, I'm just thankful that uh, that that was my time in the business. Well, JJ, you're 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 fortunate. You, you, I mean, just think back the history of this business of different promoters. I mean, you mentioned Phil Zackos. I mean, man, that goes way back. You yeah. know, Phil Zackos all the way up to Vince Jr. All those guys in between the Jim Barnetts, the Dory Funk, the Bob Goggles, the Sam Mutzix, yeah. the Jim Crockett Senior, Jim Crockett Junior. That all these guys that you've been Cal able to Cal learn Calgary too. and learn from, I mean, yeah. that, that's the important thing is learning, learning from each one of these guys, because each one of them had a little bit different philosophy, even though it's still the basic uh, wrestling philosophy, every one of them had a different uh, direction to getting there. I use as an example that, that the marquee says wrestling, 
But if you went to Lansing, Michigan and worked for the Sheik because he owned that territory, it was balls to the wall and it was crazy. And, uh, and yet if you went to Florida where there was great, you know, Eddie instilled respect for amateur wrestling. So it said wrestling on the marquee, but if you watch the match from Florida and you watch the match from Lansing, Michigan, it was both wrestling, but it, you'd have a hard time finding similarity other than that. And yet it worked. You had to learn how to, okay. If I go to Lansing, Michigan, I'm not going to try and reeducate those people to, to like what, what I was successful with down here. You, you, you have to learn, you don't fight the, you, you adapt. And, um, I was very fortunate when it was all said and done, um, cause I kept those ledgers and I added, I had 3,200 professional matches. That's 3,200 times that I put on the tights, went in the ring as a wrestler, though I'm, you know, a lot of people that think of me as a manager and are surprised to find out that I had that many matches. Well, JJ, one thing that Jerry and I love so much is, is what you said, talk about, and that is just telling stories about this business. And yeah. Jerry last week said, hey, let's try to get JJ. I said, oh, my God, that'll be awesome. And it has been. We can't thank you enough uh, for coming on. You've always been such, uh, to me, when I came in, you and, and Jerry were the ones that initially pulled me aside and offered me the contract. Then when I went up to New York and met with Vince for the first time, it was you and Lisa Wolf uh, yeah. in, uh, in one room. And you were always so kind and so gracious to me that it's, I really thank you for that because I looked up to you as, as a legend, what you are. And I was a little bit in awe of you but you were so good to me and you didn't have to be. So thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show today. Well, it's been my pleasure. And uh, you, nobody in this business enjoys success unless you have a passion for what you're doing. You got to love this business and you have to have some talent. And John, you had the passion for the business and you sure had the raw talent. So what little I did was, uh, was a very small part of the success of your career. And I'm very happy that you've done as well as you've done. JJ, you know, you and uh, you and uh, Mr. Layfield there have something in common, something that's very dear to me that you know what it is you guys have in common. It's not, you're, you're from New Jersey and he's from Texas. I'm so glad you're from New Jersey. I'm glad you're not a Texan because <laughs> I fight that all the time. But you guys have something very important in common. You know what that is? Yeah. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm glad. You guys are both Luthez, George Tregas, Luthez award-winning uh, recipients at the Dan Gable uh, Hall of Fame. Wow. That ceremony that you you gracefully uh, uh, accepted the MC role for us coming up this year, July 15th through 18th in Waterloo, Iowa, at the Dan Gable Museum. Both of you guys can testify for me. If you hadn't ever been there, this is one of the most fan-friendly uh, events that there is out on on the on the social calendar. Yeah. So make your plans to be in Waterloo, Iowa, at the Dan Gable Wrestling Museum. Yep, it's that's a must. And uh, you know, we talk about Madison Square Garden. You can say the same thing about Waterloo, Iowa. You 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 haven't. You know, if you've if you've had any success at all in this business, or even if you just was a temporary thing, you owe it to yourself to go to Waterloo, Iowa, because there is so much history up there. Awesome. JJ, thank you so thank much. Thank you, John, and thank you, Gerald. Always good to see you, my friend. Bless you. Thank you so much for being on there. See you July 15th through 18th.